unionist world, but I was in grad school for literature. And we had to read his autobiography called Chief, uh, Grace Abounding to the Chiefs of Sinners. And actually this verse, that we, part of the, the verse here which says, you know, if you've experienced these things and fall away, you know, there may not be a lot of hope for you. John Bunyan struggled with that verse. In fact, there's not really a narrative arc to that book. It's more of a narrative spin cycle. Like, Bunyan will have a moment where he thinks, ah, oh, yes, I, I finally have faith. And then he'll have some thought or do something and think, oh, no, I don't have faith. And then he'll see, think about these verses and he'll think, oh, I'm doomed, I'm doomed, I'm doomed. And then he'll have another moment. And then he goes around and he goes around and around and around. And my, my professor said, well, I, 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 she thought he was an obsessive. And I, and I said, well, it explains why that book drives me nuts, because I'm ADD, whereas he's like this. I'm like, come on, let's move on. I'm ready for something else, right? So, it, but it, the, the fact is, he's not the last to struggle with these verses, what to make of them. Uh, in fact, uh, the early, in the early church, when there was persecution and there would be those who were threatened, uh, who they would abandon their faith, and then the persecution, you know, the, 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 the crisis would pass, and then they'd want to come back to the church, and they'd say, no, you can't come back. Uh, you know, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. You know, and I don't know if people struggle with these verses specifically, but I do think that that tension is the case for a lot of people and a lot of, lot of reasons why uh, they leave the church, right? They have some sort of compulsion or behavior that they, they can't beat. And they feel like they're in, this, they're in a position where they either have to accept that they are doomed or they have to dismiss the faith altogether. And quite frankly, this feels like an easier option. And so they, they leave. Now, it's true that these words are written to challenge the readers. The preacher to the book here is speaking to a church, these churches in Jerusalem who, are, who have experienced some persecution, but it's not been too bad, but they're living in the midst of some real tension and they're worried about Rome and Israel, uh, you know, the sort of hostilities that are growing there. And, but he, and so the writer is writing them to say, you guys got to hold on. You got to refuse to become complacent in the, in the face of this threat. But the point is not to condemn them, right? He's not saying that they're a lost cause. No, the preacher assumes a positive outcome by reminding these churches of what the, they had experienced in the beginning. And when he's, there's the, the logic here is if, if you just remember that, there's no way you don't see this through. These verses talk about that past uh, as something they'd tasted. They've tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit. And then again, uh, back again to tasting. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. So it's really like, uh, they, they've encountered the almighty chef in the kitchen. 
And even as things are still simmering on burners and cooking in ovens, even as ingredients are still being chopped and diced, God has popped his head out the door and, it, you know, it's okay, you got to try this. It's got a spoon in it, you try some of this. You know, a sampling of the feast that is to come. And the preacher wants to say, you remember that, right? How good that was? No one who has tasted says, you know, thanks, but uh, we've got some leftover Little Caesars back home. Oh, you want that feast. Now, the other thing about this passage is there's this other eating metaphor. It happens in the earlier verses. There the preacher compares the church to a baby. And he's saying it's high time they get off mom's lap, sit down at the table, and eat a meal that doesn't go down without some chewing. Now, it's possible that this metaphor is of the preacher's own imagination. However, the idea of milk and solid food is a popular analogy in ancient literature, among the Greeks especially. It's how they talked about education. Schools started with the basics, grammar, uh, astronomy, math. And these areas of study were, they dealt with things that were specific, that were tangible, concrete. They were your milk. You fed on those things until your mind was properly trained to deal in the realm of abstraction with concepts and ideas. And for the Greeks, that's philosophy. That, that's the meaty stuff. Well, the preacher isn't talking about philosophy. And we get a better sense of what the preacher is talking about, uh, you know, what constitutes a baby faith versus a mature faith in the chapters that are still coming. Because the preacher is about to launch into a lengthy argument that culminates with the definition of faith as confidence in what, is, in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So if that describes a faith that eats with knife and fork, we can assume that the opposite describes a bottle-fed faith. It's a faith sustained not by a future hope, but by a present reality. It's a faith that finds assurance uh, in what what can be seen in the concrete. In other words, even if the preacher is confident that these churches in Jerusalem won't turn their back on their early experience, he is pushing some buttons here. Because after all, we are dealing with churches in Jerusalem. Of all the churches popping up around the Roman Empire, which churches have the most sort of concrete, visual references to sustained faith. I mean, if you're in Corinth and you walk around Corinth, you have temples erected to pagan gods like they're Starbucks. I mean, there's one on every corner there. But in Jerusalem, one of the great architectural wonders is in your backyard and it's dedicated to your God. The city itself is considered a holy site. I mean, even 2,000 years after the destruction of the temple, the city still has a powerful impact on people. And this is true. There is a condition 
called Jerusalem Syndrome. And it occurs when some tourist, and typically an American tourist, flies in wanting to tour the Holy Land. And, and suddenly, these things that they had only understood in sort of as abstractions, as things described in the Bible, are right there in front of them. Real, concrete. And suddenly, it's not, it's not enough to just go through and take some photos that you can post on Facebook. No, suddenly, you're walking the streets in, in the hotel linens, uh, calling yourself John the Southern Baptist preaching to the people. It's true. I'm not making this up. There, there's a mental health center in Jerusalem that deals with hundreds of cases of this a year. Now, the good news is that the cure for it is rather simple. You put them on a plane and you send them home. You remove them from all that tangible, concrete stuff that makes their faith seem so real, and they just sort of snap out of it. Well, the preacher is here arguing that the churches in Jerusalem need to snap out of it. They are feeling all this anxiety over rising tensions between Israel and Rome. They are worried, and rightly so, that these tensions could be devastating. But look, says the preacher, it's not about this city, this temple. In fact, this temple is just a big baby bottle. It's high time you wean yourself off it. Now, the fact is, even as the preacher may be talking to churches in Jerusalem, there's a lot about this that speaks to us. I think about, uh, 20, about no, but 25 years ago, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, we were working for the same campus ministry organization. We had our staff seminar and she was announcing her resignation. And she said something like, uh, she said, you know, the truth is, over the last year, I have felt far from God. And when I'm far from God, I don't stay in that place. I run from that place. So she said she was moving back home to South Carolina. Now, I felt badly for her. But I also thought, you think God's down there in South Carolina more than, than here? You know, maybe what's happening is God is putting a plate of grown-up food before you, and you're just running home for some of that southern fried nursing, right? Now, I've since learned to be, I, fortunately, I didn't say anything like that to her, but I've had to learn my own lessons in that regard. Because when the, faith, when the essence of faith is, is hope, when, the essence, when faith is about a confidence in an unseen reality, oftentimes it is in losing something that our faith grows, that it must mature. I, you know, I, I resigned from my last position. So much of what had sustained my faith evaporated. My career, my church, my friends, my status. You know, did I, did I have enough of a spiritually meaty diet to endure and even grow during that time? Yeah, sure. 
But I, I spent many of those weekends with my mom and dad, like a kid. Actually, you know, a big source of tension during that time is I wanted to go back to the church to attend as a congregant, not, not, not as a pastor. So I, you know, I waited six months, and then they said, well, give us, give us another year and a half. And I said, okay. But eight months later, I was feeling so cut off and alone. I needed something concrete. I needed them. So I asked them to please reconsider, and they would not. Eventually, I uh, met with the elders and the deacons at the allotted time, and we talked. But they said it's best that I did. I wanted to believe that we could move forward together, each in our own way. And they were sure we could not. Now, I don't want to say that they were right. So this is our little secret, all right? But they may have been right. Or at least they weren't totally wrong. The truth is, I suspect I learned what my former colleague learned going back to South Carolina. You know, things change. You have to grow. You know, God would be in that place among those people, but had I gone back, I would not have been going back to where God was as much as I, had, I would be turning my back on where God was leading me. Again, when the essence of faith is a hope, is a confidence in an unseen reality, oftentimes it is in losing something that our faith grows. And that is hard. Sufjan Stevens sings this song about being in high school and a friend is diagnosed with bone cancer. He visits her and he kisses her. And later the dad says, you know, she's got enough to go on dealing with, so don't, let's, let's, let's let that go. Anyway, and then she dies. And, and uh, the last part of the song is he's at the funeral. And there's this image in the stained glass of, of, of Jesus. See, I was hoping I'd be able to get through this part because I'd done it once this morning. I thought, okay, you'll cry at that one. You'll get it through on this one. Not looking good, folks. Anyway. So here's the, la the last lines of the song. Seeing, seeing that face of Jesus. All the glory. When he took our place. But he shook my shoulders and he shook my face and he takes and he takes and he takes. of course, that's not the whole story. Maturing in faith doesn't just involve taking and losing. There's also receiving. There's tasting. 
to use the language of the preacher. And strangely, it is often in the taking and the losing that we become better tasters. That we discover a sweetness. Otherwise, we might have missed. That we draw nourishment from the ta that taste that otherwise would have been lost on us. That we discover something unseen and eternal in the midst of the concrete and tangible. For me, part of this was that within a couple of weeks of that meeting with my old church, that this young woman named Jen reached out and we met. And eventually we started attending church together. And in addition to all her other wonderful qualities, she suggested the United Church of Christ. So whether we hold on in faith or not, over a lifetime, we will lose so much. And some might argue, well, we just need to toughen up and get used to it. But that's not what maturing is about for the preacher of Hebrews. For the preacher, something more mysterious is happening. Even when Jesus takes and takes and takes. And we see that mystery playing out in Jesus' own life when his life was taken. That there is resurrection. Yes, he takes. But hold on in faith. Because we will taste and taste and taste the goodness of the heavenly gifts. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen.